Well, we are continuing our work through the book of John, and we are up to John chapter 18, where this morning we're going to be reading verses 12 through 27. In your pew Bibles, that can be found starting on page 1074. Again, starting on page 1074 of your pew Bibles, the Gospel of John chapter 18, reading verses 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captains, the people that we read about last week that had been sent to arrest Jesus, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Anas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, "'You also are not one of this man's disciples.' Are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know how usual this is or normal it is, but... More times than not, if I have a bad dream, it's related to being unprepared for something. I'll still have dreams where I'll show up and be at high school or college and all of a sudden a teacher hands me a test for a class I haven't taken in 30 or 20 years and I feel totally unprepared and lost for the information that's on there. 
And I can't tell you how many dreams I've had where I've come to church on Sunday only to find out that the other pastor who I thought was supposed to preach thought I was supposed to preach and I have to all of a sudden come up with a sermon on the spot that I wasn't prepared to preach. And I preached some pretty good sermons in my dreams. Like I said, I don't know how common it is, but not being ready for something that comes at you suddenly, something that I worry about, and it becomes evident in my dreams. But maybe not being prepared for something is what all of us should be a little bit worried about a little bit more. I talked last week about how we see a dramatic shift in the the genre and tone of the gospel of john when we move from chapter 17 into chapter 18 previously from chapters 13 through 17 jesus had been talking with his disciples and now when we get into chapter 18 instead of hearing jesus talk we see the actions of what was taking place and in light of that If we do, just turn back the clock a little bit, a few hours, I don't know how many, but certainly not more than 12, and we remind ourselves of some of the things that Jesus had been talking about, we realize that all of that conversation was meant to prepare his disciples for what was about to come. So, for example, in chapter 13, right after Judas left to betray Jesus, Jesus said that the disciples couldn't follow where Jesus was going. And in response to that, Peter said with great boldness that he would definitely follow Jesus, that he would lay down his life for his rabbi. To which Jesus replied in 13 verse 38, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow Till you have denied me three times. And then in chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus prepared his disciples for the fact that if he was persecuted, then they should expect that they too will also be persecuted. In chapter 16, verse 1, he said to them, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. The warnings had been given. They had been stated clearly. Jesus had told them, tests and trials will come. Be prepared and don't fall away. And in the text that we just read, we see that those predictions start to come true immediately. And as we get into the text for today, let me just remind you of one of the things I said also last week, that as we look at John's particular description of these events, we should be paying attention to what stands out, what surprises us, what details does he include in order to not just tell us what happened, but what this means. And with that, what we notice right away in this part of the text is that John jumps back and forth between two scenes. And as clear as it is that Jesus is starting to face the trial that would lead to his crucifixion, we notice that Jesus is not the only one who is on trial here. Peter is also facing his own trial. And in John's intertwining of these two stories together, we learn quite a bit about what it means to be prepared to face trials or to be caught unprepared in those trials. 
We start by looking at the trial of Jesus in verses 12 through 14. Picking up where we left off last week, we are told that Jesus is officially arrested and that he is bound. He is uh, now officially being detained and is in custody. And while, as we highlighted last week, there were both Roman soldiers present at his arrest and religious authorities, the first uh, area of domain, if you will, are the religious authorities. They're under his jurisdiction, and he is brought to trial under them, first of all. And we know this because the first person he's brought to is this man named Anas, which is interesting because while he wasn't the current high priest, he had been in the past. And he was clearly a man, as we know through historical record, of great ongoing influence. Several of his sons held that role as high priest. And the current high priest, Caiaphas, was his son-in-law. Clearly, Anas is highly respected and he's a feared individual in the Jewish ruling class of the day. But right away, we recognize that there's some funny things going on with this trial. First of all, we remember that this is taking place in the middle of the night. When the soldiers had come to arrest Jesus, they brought torches with them because they couldn't see. This is before the sun has risen on the day, and yet, in the middle of the night, they're going to start this trial. It would be far more normal to wait, to hold Jesus in prison for a little bit amount of time and wait until the next day when this could be publicly done, when everyone was awake and aware. So because this is going on in dark, it is certainly strange. Also, in mentioning Caiaphas, we are reminded by John that this isn't the first time that we've heard this name. Back in chapter 11, right after Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave, it was an event that caught an awful lot of attention, understandably. And in that, Caiaphas's reaction was to calm everyone down by suggesting it would be better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole world should perish. But in that reminder, we know that the fix is in. Because there is no possible way that you can stand in front of someone and receive a fair trial who already has said that they would like to just get rid of you as a particular problem in order to protect everybody else. They are biased from the get-go. And so this is not a fair trial. Early on in this introduction, we know that this is not going to be a right in a fair process. But before that trial of Jesus really gets underway, we have a quick shift in focus to Peter. And he's brought to the forefront in verses 15 through 18. For, to his credit, true to his word, a few hours ago, Peter does try to follow where Jesus is going, but he can only get so far. They're not allowing strangers into the courtroom of the, of the courtyard of the high priest. And so Peter's stuck outside. But fortunately, there was another disciple that had some kind of in with the high priest. Now, this disciple goes unnamed, probably because the, John wants to keep the focus on Peter. But even though there are other options, most consensus is that the unnamed disciple is the author of this gospel, John himself. 
And in using these connections to get Peter a little closer to the action, the servant girl that was responsible for keeping guard of the gate looks at Peter and she gets a little curious. And she asks, you are also not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, a couple of things to note right away. First of all, let's notice where this question is coming from. This isn't from one of the officials. This isn't one of the armed guards that had brought Jesus to this place. This is someone with no authority, no responsibility, no status whatsoever. This is a servant girl who has a fairly innocent question, and I think we should accept it as that. Another thing to notice is the way that the question is framed. She asks if Peter is also one of his disciples which suggests that she's aware of the fact that the other person, this other disciple, was a disciple of Jesus, and she wants to know if Peter is one also. But if this other disciple is in the presence of the high priest and is in this space, and people know of his association with Jesus, and he's doing just fine, why should that concern Peter then? Why should he be worried? But despite that fact, despite the fact that this question comes from a low person on the totem pole and who really has uh, no concern, truly, is just interested, Peter's not prepared. And this trial catches him off guard. And where the question seems to imply a negative answer, Peter just kind of goes along with it. And he gives the simple response, I am not. And all of a sudden, Peter's done something that he thought he never would do. He denies his relationship with Jesus. He distances himself from his friend, his Lord, and his Savior. Now, no motive for that statement is given, but we can all guess why Peter did that. He didn't want to be connected with Jesus at the moment. He feared what that would mean for him and the perception of these other people. It's a quick moment, and it's a sad one. Commentating on this text, John Calvin suggests that it's very typical of many Christians to, when thinking about trials that potentially would lie ahead, state with great boldness that we would never deny our Lord and Savior. And yet, even when there is no enemy really present except for our own concern, how quickly those desires fall apart. And, that little, and this little part of the scene ends with Peter just trying to blend in with and stand next to the very same people that just had arrested Jesus. Well, as soon as that takes place, the scene again shifts back to Jesus and what's happening with him in verses 19 through 24. And right away, our suspicions from the earlier section are confirmed. There's something definitely off about this trial. In the research that I did, there are uh, a bit of an extension to say this, but a couple of parallels, if you will, between the Jewish uh, religious trial system and the American system. One of the parallels is that the accused was, in essence, innocent until proven guilty. 
Furthermore, they had what we would call our Fifth Amendment, something similar to that, where it wasn't up to the accused to bring the charges against themselves. They didn't have to say anything against why they were there, but it was up to witnesses. The whole trial should be surrounded by people who were accusing a particular person, at least two individuals who were present to say, this is what we saw that person do wrong. That was how the trial was supposed to take place. However, in this trial, what we see Anas doing is starting by questioning Jesus. He asks him about his disciples and he asks him about his teachings. And when we see him ask these questions, some suppose that he's asking about his disciples to start to lay the groundwork for the potential charge that Jesus is trying to raise up a following to lead an insurrection against Rome. But his area of concern, if he had any legitimate one, should have been around Jesus' teachings, around the theological things that Jesus was doing. But despite this, Jesus keeps his cool and he calls out this issue of injustice here. It's not up to Jesus to convict himself, to bring evidence against himself of the things that he had been doing. In fact, it's supposed to be other people. And Jesus is firm. He says, there's nothing that I've taught in secret that I haven't taught in public. I've been completely consistent this whole entire time. So if you are going to try to charge me with anything, bring forth the witnesses that will tell you exactly everything that I have said. And that's where this trial takes a turn. Oftentimes when people are defeated intellectually, they resort to violence. And that's exactly what happens. Instead of being met with witnesses to accuse him, Jesus is met with a smack across the face. And we should be appalled by that. Jesus is struck for nothing. And again, he asks for some justice, some witnesses that are going to tell him why what he did and what he said was wrong. But there were no accusers. And what we find out is that when Jesus stands trial in front of these religious leaders, though he has been arrested, though he has been brought here, there's nothing that they have against him. There are no trial charges. There's nothing that they say that he did wrong. In fact, all they do is quickly just kind of move him on. He's, and yet... Jesus is not rattled. He's willing to stand before them and to drink the cup that has been given to him. While Jesus is in control and, and, bringing, and being moved on without accusation, Peter continues to face his own accusations, again back to verses 25 and 27. Peter's right where we last left him, standing amidst the accusers of Jesus, but his presence is not unnoticed, and people again start to ask questions. The people just, in their question, ask almost the, the same exact one as the servant girl, implying a negative answer, they again say, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? 
And now, having already lied once, the stakes are that much higher. There is that much more at risk. And so, out of his mouth, we can imagine almost immediately comes the response, I am not. A second denial to his connection to Christ. And a second distancing of himself from his Lord. But the questions are not over. He's not fooling everyone, and he certainly isn't going to fool someone that saw Peter with Jesus in the garden at the time of his arrest, because it was his relative whose ear Peter had cut off. Peter had called attention to himself in the garden, and he was therefore recognizable from there. But again, having created a false statement twice, the stakes are getting higher. The denials keep coming. Probably quicker and easier, Peter again denied it. And at that very moment, the rooster crowed. Now again, John presumes that we're going to remember and know what that means. In hearing the rooster crow, we hear the words of Jesus to Peter from just a few hours earlier in chapter 13. You will deny me three times. Before the rooster crows. Two trials going on. Both of them had been warned about and expected. The one of Jesus, innocent Savior, being unfairly and falsely brought before these accusers with the sole exposed purpose of trying to get rid of him by any means necessary. And yet, in knowing that this would happen, Jesus is still clearly composed and prepared. He is willing to expose the false claims and the injustices that are being perpetrated. perpetrated. The other, while also warned of, seems to catch Peter unprepared. Because it is not a trial of identified enemies or because he's not standing before the official accusers, Instead, it's a trial that happens on the social level. And despite his protestations that he would be willing to die with Jesus and would never become a denier or a betrayer, when those statements get tested, his trial catches him off guard and he completely fails. He is quick to distance himself from his relationship with Jesus. And while John doesn't mention it specifically, it's pretty clear that not only is that key of the rooster crowing meant to remind us, but it seems to have also reminded Peter of what Jesus had said would happen. But John just leaves it here. He describes it happening, but gives no more comment on it, at least at the moment. And in fact, Peter is immediately going to disappear from the the conversation entirely, and he will not show up again until the resurrection. The last we see of him here is a defeated person. But after the resurrection, we're going to have to come back to this scene because John and Jesus wants to make sure that we know that Jesus isn't done with Peter in addressing this issue. After the resurrection, Jesus is going to come back to this, and he's going to remind Peter of exactly what happened here. And that's where we start to get an application for this text for us. I think 
that Peter is someone that we all can identify with, and I think we are meant to identify with him in this scene. With Peter, you and I have been warned by Jesus that trials and tests of our faith will come. And very often, knowing that, we are bold to predict that if we were ever to face persecution, if anyone were ever to charge us, we would never deny our relationship with Jesus. And yet, very often, the tests of our faith don't happen on the official level or the political level, but they happen on the social level. You're not one of those people that don't drink, are you? You're not one of those stuck-up people that's going to worry about our language, are you? You're not going to bail on your friends this weekend to go to church, are you? Those are the kind of trials and tests that come our way. And very often in those tests and trials, we fail. No, I'm not. I'm not that person. So what do we do? A few things. First is the call to be prepared. That was a major point of Jesus' long discourse from earlier. He had warned, he had predicted, he said all of these things so that his disciples will not fall away. But Peter didn't listen to that warning. And in his pride, he disagreed with Jesus' words. From the other Gospels, when called to pray with Jesus to prepare himself for what was about to come, Peter fell asleep instead. And I think we need to hear that same warning. Tests and trials will come, so be prepared to not fall away. Be prepared by praying. Asking God to give you eyes to see temptations when they come and the faith to stand firm. Spend time with the Lord, developing your relationship with him, knowing his word so you can see those temptations and tests far before they come our way. Be prepared by staying away from the places where you know you're going to face temptations. It's interesting Later on in his life, this very same Peter will have learned his lesson. And in the epistle that he writes and is included in the scriptures, he warns in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We have an enemy. That enemy is prowling around, ready to pounce and attack when you are least expecting it. So expect it. Be prepared. But more importantly, I think the lesson that we learn from Peter is our need for a Savior. And seeing Peter deny and distance himself from Jesus, it's a reminder that all humanity has done the very same thing. The whole reason why Jesus was doing what he was doing was because we all have rebelled against God. Every temptation we have faced ever in our lives is a test to see if we're going to stay true to God's word or distance ourselves from God. 
And every time we sin, we fail that test. But thanks be to God that the story doesn't end here. Peter will be restored. He will be forgiven by the resurrected Lord. And even someone who failed so greatly at this moment of trial was still used later by God to do incredible things to build his kingdom. And that's where we see and that's where we proclaim the hope in this text. Jesus willingly faced these trials faithfully so that we can be forgiven when we fail our trials. His faithfulness covers our failures. That's not an invitation then to fail and say like, well, that means I guess I get to keep sinning. No, instead it should motivate us all the more. Knowing that if Jesus went through that for our sin, we should hate it all the more and distance ourselves from our sin and not from him. And so the call is to accept God's grace in Christ and then to be prepared for the tests that will come. Say that especially as we take this week to prepare ourselves for the participation in communion next week, may we enter this week with a renewed desire to look out for the temptations that are come our way and to stand firm against them so that we do not fall away when tested. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, you in your word have warned and prepared us that we will face trials and that the devil is there prowling to try to destroy your disciples. And in our arrogance and pride, very often we have thought of ourselves that we are better than that, that we would stand firm. And yet we all can think of times where when tested, we were unprepared, and being unprepared, we failed. Lord, in your grace, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for restoring us. And our prayer is that as we continue this journey of, of looking at and contemplating the trials that you underwent and how faithful you were, it would call us to respond in our own faithfulness and service. Again, especially this week, as we focus our lives around your sacrifice, I pray that it would cause us all the more to be ready for the test that we know we will face and being prepared that we would stand firm for you. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.